fan in 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishabite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward and hide in the, in the Kerith ravine, east of Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kerith ravine, east of Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Some time later, the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarpath, some place in Sidon, and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarathpa. And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and asked her, Would you bring me a little jar, bring me a little water in a jar so that I might have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And please bring me a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I do not have any bread, only a handful of flour in the jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord the God of Israel says the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day until the day the Lord gives rain on the land she went and did as Elijah had told her so there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come here to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give your son, give me your son, Elijah replied, and he took, him, took her from her arms and carried him up to the upper room where he was staying, and he laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. The boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. And he gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth.
planning for the last uh, 24 hours or so. Uh, yesterday, I decided to go for a bike ride, and uh, I thought I'd go out to Alan and Joan Cummins' house, and they live out on uh, Huon Creek Road. And so for me to get there, I'm in West uh, Wodonga, I come down Fell Timber, hit the roundabout just here, and I have to go up over Camborne Park, over um, Camborne Mountain. You know the, uh, the gradient over this hill here is quite steep. And um, so when I get there, I'm all sweaty, and then I go for a swim. And uh, half an hour later, it kills me, this, this steep mountain just here, probably a 10 degree gradient or less, but it kills me every time I go over it. And half an hour later, Mason turns up on his bike as well. And uh, he starts telling me, he says, oh, you know, when I came up over that hill there, my heart rate was doing 160. I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's pretty good. He, he's got this little gadget. He's got this, this is the watch here. And there's a strap that goes around your chest, so I'm wearing it tonight. So who, who says you can't mix a bit of science and religion together? Because I'm going to see what my heart rate is. But Mason, Mason uh, gets out there and has a swim. And my plan was actually to come home with Kath, get a lift home. I wasn't going to ride home. And so he says, all right, I said, we're going to ride home, aren't we? And I'm like, no. And he said, yes, we are. I said, right, so we come back and uh, he puts this on me, the, the, the heart monitor. I get about 300 metres from uh, Alan and Joan's front gate and my heart's already doing about 156. This is flat land and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, what's it going to read when I come over the, uh, the hill? Anyway, I come up the hill I'm hitting 192 beats a minute, so more than three beats a second. And uh, the, the, the watch is beeping at me like it is now, beeping at me going, you know, warning, warning, you know, you're going you're gonna to drop dead. Anyway, <laughs> when I got home, I just thought, this is crazy, you know, this, this exercise thing, you know, what if I have a heart attack? This is, this is no good for me. What if I have a heart attack and, uh, while I'm riding my bike? And then I thought... Well, what if I have a heart attack when I'm riding and Mason's there because I know that he won't give me CPR. <laughs> the closest he might come to is he'll have his foot <laughs> on my chest and he'll say, I ain't breathing for you, buddy, but we'll wait for the, hot, for the ambulance to get here. So they're the sort of thoughts that go through my mind for some strange reason. So if I actually collapse tonight, anyone but Mason will be fine to come and help me. And my heart rate at the moment is 148. So Mason was doing that coming over the hill. So either I'm, uh, I'm very unfit or I'm nervous. So I think I'm nervous. But uh, look, um, what a great time of worship we just had, wasn't it? It was fantastic. And uh, sometimes simple is good, isn't it? It's really great that we can, uh, can praise God. But look, before we look at his word... Um, and look at this passage tonight. How about we open in prayer? Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that you are a God that loves us. You're a God that's worthy of praise. And we pray that as we come to look at your word, that you will just open our hearts and minds to the things that you have to say to us. Lord, we commit this evening to you in your precious name. Amen. Well, one of the common questions that we all need to face in life uh, is the question of who's in charge. And whether we are a school student, whether we're at university, whether we're employed, uh, whether we are retired, 
we all have someone that we're ultimately accountable to, whether it be a school teacher, uh, your boss, at the end of the day, the police or the, or the government which governs this country. We all have, uh, we, we are all, um, have someone that's in charge of us. And as a Christian, we ask, have to ask the same question, but from a very different perspective. Who's in charge of my life? And when we come to the book of 1 Kings, we're obviously in the area of who's in charge. So there's 50,000 words cover 400 years from the death of King David to the near death of Israel when 10 of the 12 tribes get wiped out. And in the end, it's exactly as God said it would be when Israel, the nation of Israel, came to him. And uh, like a, a, a whining bunch of children saying, we want to have a king like everyone else has. And God uh, talks to the people through Samuel and uh, he says to them, he says, this is a rejection of me. I'm your king. But Israel, the people wanted the king and that's what they got. They got the, the standard king with the standard armies and the standard taxes. And uh, God granted them their wish. And when we get to this point in uh, 1 Kings 17, at this point in history, we find the kingdom of Israel in real trouble for two key reasons. Firstly, Israel are being uh, led by King Ahab. And Ahab was a, uh, a real high achiever in the evil stakes. Uh, when we look at 1 Kings 16.30, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam by keeping the idols going in the temple, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. You see, there were no half measures to Ahab's evil practices. He was a, a really bad fellow, and uh, he was leading and had led Israel to an unprecedented place of infidelity. And secondly, and more importantly, the reason that Israel was in trouble here was because they had now also forgotten or forsaken the God of their ancestors. They had forsaken Yahweh, and they were caught up now in, in this deep worship of Baal. And King Ahab, he's built uh, temples and he's built idols and golden calves so that the Israelites can go to those places and, uh, and worship the Baals. And uh, in doing so, Ahab's broken... God's first two commandments. You shall have no other God but me and you shall not uh, worship idols. And because the worship of Baal had been going on for so long uh, in Israel and no dire consequences had followed, um, the Israelites were of the belief that, that Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, no longer existed. But what a, when we look through uh, the book of Kings, we see that history has shown that any king that didn't come and remove those temp um, the idols and the, uh, the images and destroy the temples in the worship of Baal, any king that didn't do that, they were uh, doomed to destruction. Because even though it, uh, the worship of idols had history and tradition on its side, no matter how um, well accepted it was, it was still considered totally evil. You know, we ourselves live in a, in a culture and a society where uh, things that were considered socially unacceptable in the past, you know, in the last 5, 10, 15 or 20 years, things that have been 
considered unacceptable then have subtly um, gained acceptance. And you know, the most obvious example of this is just when we look at what we see and hear on television these days. Like the degree of language that we now hear, uh, it's just commonplace to hear every, every word under the sun. And, and the level of um, sexually explicit material on television um, is very high now. And it, it's because it's been gradually accepted over time. And the problem that we have is that once it's been accepted, it's very hard to reverse a, a decision or reverse um, the standard, I suppose. As Christians and as followers of Jesus, um, we also need to be wary of this. And we need to be wary that as we look at God's word and we acknowledge that it is divine, that we need to be careful that as we read it, as we preach it, as we teach it, that we don't um, soften the message of, uh, of Jesus, that we don't soften God's word to the point where the original message that God may have had intended is lost. There's a real danger of doing that, and we need to be uh, be very careful of that. Chris Marshall is quoted as saying that the most dangerous passages in the Bible are the familiar ones, because we don't actually listen to them. The sharp tones of God's word, smoothed down by the river of time, no longer cuts, and instead of being challenged through hard choices, through obedience we lean back and savour familiar words. So as a church, as Christians, as churches across Australia, we need to be uh, conscious of the fact and be aware that we are, not, uh, that we are actually um, giving people the message that uh, God intended us to do. You know, and if we, if we uh, start having churches, you know, we, we offer programs uh, to people within the church and in the community and if we get to the point that we are scared that we may offend people because of the uh, life-saving message of, of Jesus, we're in a real serious predicament. So those of you here, that if you're involved in a ministry team or involved in ministry in some way, where does Jesus, where does uh, this great message that he has, where does that fit into your program? Anyway, back to the passage um, so Israel, they're consumed in the uh, worship of idols and Baal and there hasn't been a prophet in Israel for some time and all of a sudden we see Elijah appear on the scene. He comes out of nowhere. And some people might go, wow, fantastic, a prophet of God. No, 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 quite the co contrary that when Elijah turns up or when a prophet turns up, that's generally bad news. You know, it's a bit like having your own... Uh, oncologist. You know, if you've got your own, cult, your own personal oncologist, it's generally bad news, though it's good news to have one. But if a prophet of God turns up, what it is usually saying is that the covenant between God and his people is in terrible danger, and it's usually led by the kings. And the first point of interest in this passage is Elijah himself. See, Elijah's name actually means, my God is Yahweh. So Elijah's name is his message. And talking to King Ahab, he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Now, what's the significance of no dew and no rain? That sounds like hardly a threat. 
But the significance is, is that Baal is a, uh, is a storm god. He's a fertility god. And he's not interested in setting up a moral structure. Baal was a specialist in producing the rain and the storms and enabling the, the people to have crops. And what the people used to do, they, what they had to do is they had to sexually excite Baal so that he would spray moisture upon the world. And that's what it was about. That in the worship of Baal, there was prostitution in the temple and the people used to go there in order to excite him so that it would be moisture fall upon, upon the earth. See, Baal at that point in time was, a, was the god of now and the god of the future. See, there were less rules. There was no accountability. And going to the temple was fun. It was fun for everyone. And Yahweh, well, he was considered a god of the old days, a god uh, that could get you out of Egypt. You see, the people were caught up in the worship of Baal. But at this point in time, what, what is God doing with his prophet Elijah? He's got him here before the king. Well, the lie that was brought to the people was that Baal was a specialist in producing the rain. And so what Yahweh says, what the God of Israel says is, okay, I'm going to bring Baal down in, in his area of expertise. I'm going to show my backslidden people that Yahweh is, is the only true God. I'm going to show them that Baal is merely a produce of their own human thinking and he's nothing. So we're going to have a duel. Here are the rules. Except from the word of my prophet Elijah, no rain or dew will fall upon the land. See, God is shouting to his people, Hear, O, hear, o Israel, you have but one God. God is in charge. So verse 1, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Galeed said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. I mean, this is a strange thing for God to say here, he's thrown, Elijah's arrived, he's thrown down the challenge that there's going to be no rain or no dew on the land. And then he says to Elijah, go and hide in the Kerith Ravine. And I wonder what Elijah's thinking at this point. You know, God, I've just arrived. I haven't even unpacked my bags, I've, I've done as you've said. And now you're asking me to go and hide in the Kerith Ravine. But you see, there's no correspondence entered into between Elijah and God. And because God... Um, honors, because Elijah honors God, and because Elijah has given God control of his life, he acts in obedience and he goes to the Kerith Ravine. You see, this part of the passage is significant, uh, particularly for Elijah, for one key reason. God says, Go and hide in the Kerith Ravine and I'll, and I'll feed you by the ravens. Now, the issue here is that. Uh, for, the Jewish, for a Jewish person, ravens were considered an unclean bird. And so what, what God is saying is, go to the Kerith Ravine and hide, and I'm going to feed you, um, or an unclean bird is going to provide your food. And to the Jews, a raven was, um, they were like a flying pig, really. You know, they'd have nothing to do with them. And what God says to this good Israelite who, who honours God, he says, I'm going to feed you through an unclean bird. 
I mean, who's in charge here? You know, sometimes uh, God asks us to do things that uh, don't make any sense at the time. They don't appear to be logical. It doesn't appear to be any um, rhyme or reason behind uh, why we might, might be asked or directed uh, to do something. You know, and it's at those times that we really need to trust that God is in control. And there are times when we serve God that uh, it can be uh, a lonely, lowly and lengthy call. There's no pats on the back. There's no right up in the church bulletin. We might be uh, uh, slogging away in our service for God but still not understand. See, but it's during those times that we need to submit ourselves to God and understand that, that he is sovereign and that he is in control. See, humility marked the prophet's life and humility is also the call of every follower of Jesus. So Elijah goes camping at the creek. He sets up his little bivouac. And during this time, King Ahab and Jezebel, they're um, back in Israel and they're looking for any of the remaining prophets of God. They're wiping out anything that, has, uh, that, that proclaims that Yahweh is God. You know, they're, they're full on keen about setting up this worship of Baal. But why does Elijah go and hide? He's not, he's not hiding because he's scared of King Ahab and Jezebel. He's going there and he's, um, he's gone to the Kerith Ravine because God's asked him to. And one of the uh, hard things and one of the key things in being God's person is having the humility and wisdom to do as he asks us, whether we think it's a, uh, a good strategy or not. It doesn't mean that we um, can't question God and, and, and it doesn't mean that we are not going to have these feelings of uncertainty and, and wonder why things are happening a particular way. But when we put our trust in God, in Jesus, we know that his plans for us are good and that he can see the whole picture. And we have the option either to follow his lead or we can stay behind in Israel and be hacked up in the little pieces by King Ahab and Jezebel. So Elijah, he goes and sits by the, book, uh, by the brook, and he's um, sitting there for a long time, and he's probably reading a couple of the latest releases, um, Adventures of Abraham or How to Deliver Bad News by Moses. But he's there for a long time. And in verse 7, we see that sometime later the brook dried up because there'd been no rain in the land. And now we see that the very prophecy, the very message that Elijah was bringing to King Ahab was starting to cause him some problem. And presumably the brook didn't dry up overnight. It would have got lower and lower until it eventually uh, ran dry. And it wasn't until it was all gone that God comes to Elijah and says, now I'll tell you what my plans are. You know, we are taught by Jesus to pray Give us today our daily bread. And that's all we are really entitled to. You know, we're keen on, on long-term plans and there's definitely a place for that. But there are times when uh, God just discloses his will to us little by little, bit by bit. And the challenge for us is to trust God and to rest assured that he is in control. Elijah is then told to go and do something even stranger. So the book dries up in verse 8. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him. 
Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now, who do we know in this passage that comes from Sidon? Well, Jezebel comes from Sidon. Jezebel married King Ahab. And Jezebel is a worshipper of Baal. And Sidon is a place that is given over to idolatry. It's full of temples built for the Baal. And now God says in this great clash with Baal, he says to his prophet, to his servant Elijah, I'm now going to send you to the heart of darkness. I'm going to send you to the centre of the evil empire and I'm going to look after you there. Not in my garden, not where it's safe. I'm going to send you there into what would have been considered those days as Baal's land. I mean, who's in charge here? Because Elijah was wise and willing to give God total control of his life, he did exactly as he was asked to do without even a hint of an argument. He wanders right into the land of evil. He wanders right into this place where the terrible infection had come into Israel. He meets the widow and then he asks her for a drink and some bread and she says in verse... Lost it. Verse 12... She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, I don't think that this was a comment on the widow's cooking skills or her ability, but it was rather a, a comment which showed the extremity of the current situation that they were facing. And Elijah now would probably be thinking, okay, God, I've, I've served you, I've followed you, I've gone to the um, Kerith Ravine. You know, you've sent me into this unclean land and now you're asking me to ask this widow who has no food, who's about to go and prepare a meal and die, you want me to ask her for food? You know... The first moment that this widow has with the prophet of God, it's a real test of her, of her faith. And uh, it's a real, it literally is a life and death test of her faith. And she'll either hear, trust and obey or, or, or do as you may expect and say, don't be ridiculous. Can't you see that we're starving? Can't you see that we're about to die? But the, the Holy Spirit does a great miracle in her heart. And she hears through this stranger, through Elijah, the very, the very voice of God. And she hears and she trusts and she makes for him food first. And then we later read that the little jar of oil uh, uh, never runs out until the rain came. And again, the great challenge here for us is to trust God first. We need to uh, make God our priority first. God doesn't want to be just prominent in our lives. He wants to be preeminent in everything that we do. He wants to be at the forefront of all of our decision-making. He wants to be there. You know, we can sometimes arrive at a point in our lives um, and experience things where we, uh, we just can't see uh, through the rain. You know, um, so many people have been, uh, are affected by divorce or separation you may have parents that have gone through that. Uh, so many people have, and you may be here tonight, and you, you're facing financial difficulties. You're, 
you don't have work or you're looking for work, you're struggling to pay um, a mortgage. Maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're struggling with uh, an addiction, you know, something that time and time again you keep recommitting to God but you think, I'm never going to get out of this hole. The challenge, like the widow, is for us to trust God first. Even though it's hard, we need to trust God and understand that he is in control. And it's not a flippant trust where we say, okay, yes, I have faith in God. It's a trust that is a trust of action where um, we, we basically, through our knowledge of God and through these hard times, we know and we see God's hand at work in our life. We know that he is in control. See, God didn't provide for Elijah by dumping a dirty big load of flour and oil at the widow's house. It was little by little and it was bit by bit. You know, God provided for him in that way. And now he's, he's, uh, not, now he's been looked after uh, in an unclean land by an unclean person who was a woman who in those times uh, would, have played against, would have played against him staying there. But see, God's told him what to do and again he believes both publicly with King Ahab and he believes privately that God is in control and he does as he's asked. And the result now is that this unknown, unnamed widow can stand before the throne of God. You see, out of obedience comes fruit. So Elijah's living in this house and he's probably renting uh, a room from, from the widow. And the next thing that we see happens is that, uh, is that the widow's son dies. And the widow comes uh, to the prophet of God and says, what is going on here? You know, I'm looking after you, I'm feeding you, I'm hiding you in, this, in my house, in this land. I'm, I'm, I am actually betraying my people. I'm betraying the God of my people by protecting you. And all of a sudden, my son dies. Now, Elijah didn't promise this widow that, uh, that she was going to be free from any harm or anything like that. But, you know, it would probably be fair for her to assume that because she was helping and serving and honouring God, that these sort of things wouldn't happen to her. There's no history of resurrection in the Old Testament to this point, and Elijah has no command or directive from God to, to heal her son, but he has a knowledge of God, and he has a dead son in front of him. And so we see that in uh, verse, uh, verse 20 he prays. He says, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. You know, we know that the widow already knew that. We know that the widow knew that uh, Elijah was uh, a prophet of God and she knew that God was with him and with her. But it's the same for us, you see. When you prove the Lord in your life, you know, what begins to develop is a, is a stronger um, conviction and a, and a stronger presence of God in the things that we um, say and do. And, and those that call Jesus their own, they can see God's hand at work. See, the feelings of dread are replaced with faith. And as the Apostle Paul, who was no stranger to adversity, would testify, 
He said, I can do everything through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. When we look at the, uh, the three instances that have just faced Elijah, we get a great insight into his personal life and some of the things that made him one of the great prophets of God. And we see that he's a man of extraordinary humility and that he's a man that's given uh, God complete control of his life. And when God says something, no matter how out of step it may seem, no matter how odd it may seem, how it may differ to what we think God should do, Elijah is able to do it. And the end result is obedience to God, mercy to the widow, and a reminder to the people of Israel that God, that Yahweh, is the only true God. You know, my wife Kathy and uh, a friend of ours, Nairi Miller, um, they're both young women. They're in their early 30s, late 20s, um, possibly. Very young. Look younger than you are, darling. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, but they both uh, are parents of two um, young, great, fantastic kids. And uh, they're both wives of two... Um, outstanding, athletic, intelligent, smart husbands and um, with both who have receding hairlines, by the way. But, um, yeah, but the, the, the thing that they both have in common is that they have faced uh, life-threatening cancer. And the thing that they both share in common is that they both know what it's like to go and sit by the brook in the Kerith Ravine they both know what it's like to say to God and to ask God the question, to ask God, what is going on here? And they both know what it's like to be able to see God's hand uh, at work in their life. You know, they've both been to the place of reckoning where faith moves from a knowledge, from a head knowledge, to a deep conviction. You know, they both have the option of standing there and just shaking their fist at God and saying, what's going on, God? Why me? You know, this is, this is just not right. And I'm sure that there are times when they have felt that and I'm sure that there are times that they've prayed that and thought that. But what they've both discovered and what they both now understand even more so is that God is sovereign and that God is in complete control. You know... We began the night and we're going to end the night on the question of who is in charge here. And if we've seen, as, and as we've seen in this passage, when God is in charge, he's going to impact our lives and the lives of those around us. When we're obedient to God, he's able to act. And we've seen tonight that God's involvement in our lives brings improvement in re- and restoration. Widows are fed. Lives are spared and people's needs are provided. However, if we choose to reject God like Ahab did, things are going to um, deteriorate. We're going to have immorality, injustice, oppression and isolation. James 4 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And it's been said that you're only as close to God as you really want to be. You may not be as close to God as you want to be, but you're only as close to God as you really want to be. 
And it's in this context, and it's in the context of humbling yourself and cleaning out the things in your life that his word says are inappropriate for his children that we can do this. Where is God in your life now? You know, who, who is in charge of your life here tonight? You know, what are the things, what's the rubbish, what's the inappropriate things that you need to clean out of your life so that you can give God complete control? And how does your relationship with Jesus, with a living God, uh, impact your daily life? How does it affect the way that you relate to your family, to your friends, to your parents, to your brother and sister, to the people that you work with? How does it affect the way that you relate to people in this building? How does it affect your long-term plans? Have you ever wondered why there might be black spots in your life? Have you ever wondered why you may struggle with things? You know, perhaps there are areas in your life where God is not in charge. And perhaps there are areas tonight that we need to hand over to him and say, God, my, fa- my finances, I've been hanging on too tight. I'm ignoring your word. I hand them over to you. God, the way that I behave when I'm alone, I struggle, yes, but I hand it over again to you tonight. Now, the call of the Israelites was to be a, God, um, was to be a nation that... Uh, that was able to show to the other nations around them that God was in charge. They were to be countercultural and show everyone around them what it was like to uh, be a nation that served God. You know, and they failed in that area, and we're no different. And perhaps tonight it's time for you to be different. Perhaps it's time to be obedient. And perhaps it's time to. Uh, to let go and give God control of your entire life. Not tomorrow, but today, here, tonight. You know, let's be a people that are willing to place ourselves under God's word and accept that we don't know anything compared to him. And if he commands us to live in this way and everything in our culture tells us to live another way, You'd be a fool to be proud and you'd be wise to be humble because God's ways are not our ways. They're higher and they're better because God is in charge here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can uh, come here tonight and uh, we come to you knowing, Lord, that, uh, that you are in charge, that you're in control. And we come to you knowing that there are things that we haven't handed over to you. Lord, we know that there are things that are, are blocking our relationship with you. Lord, we know that we, uh, there are times when we are disobedient, that we choose not to listen. And Lord, we pray that we can come to you and um, trust that you're a God that is in control. Lord, we come to you and we want to hand those things over to you tonight. Lord, we give you our life. We give you everything that we have. We give you our future and our plans. Lord, we, um, we bring this to you now. We just pray this in your name. Amen.